Hey there, welcome to ATL on 29 of Peachtree Hoops podcast where we look at the NBA from the starting point of Atlanta. Atlanta has a series coming up with the Philadelphia 76ers and so I'm going to talk today to Sean O'Connor, former writer and editor of Liberty Ballers. Welcome Sean. Kevin, thank you for having me. I have to clear something up here to start off. Earlier today you were tweeting Something, uh, I'm going to loosely paraphrase, you said you were cooking frozen fish, but Dwight really made you want to have a cheesesteak, and I'm hoping that's Dwight Howard. That, that is Dwight Howard. Um, so Dwight Howard uh, had a media availability earlier, and without, um, without prompting, brought up that uh, his favorite parts of Philadelphia are being able to walk around town and get a cheesesteak from Ishka Bibbles, which is not one of the like main like cheesesteak go-to places that uh, that tourists think of when they come to Philadelphia. Um, and so Dwight has uh, successfully pandered his way to the hearts of all Philadelphia fans, which is to say anyone listening to this on the Atlanta side is probably shocked, and um, I am too. <laughs> so has he, has he replaced Mike Scott as the – Sixers cult fan favorite because I remember Mike Scott Hive and being proud and as, as somebody who uh, got to spend some time a little bit with both of them during the 2015-16 no wait 2016-17 seasons and for Mike Scott some before that uh, I, I would join Mike Scott Hive before I joined the Dwight Howard bubble. <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, it's been a weird turn of events. Um, so Dwight signed with the Sixers this past summer, um, and Mike Scott had been here. Um, but Scott has struggled this year uh, pretty mightily with his shooting, um, has been in and out of the rotation, and at times has even gotten booed by the home fans for, for missing shots and for, for really not playing up to what his expectations are. Whereas Dwight has come in and has been cracking jokes, pumping up the crowd, He's the resident frosty freeze-out guy where he pumps up the crowd to get players to miss free throws. And whenever he, um, whenever he scores, uh, really any situation where he has an N1, um, the team's uh, operations crew goes and plays the Superman theme in the background. And the fans <laughs> just eat it up. They eat it up. And Dwight has become something of a folk hero here. And which again, if you look at Dwight's career, both with the Hawks and with other teams is something that you would never have expected. Um, but Dwight and Philadelphia have become a, a happy pairing. So I guess he's kind of front and center here. Is, is he the part of the main backup plan if Joel Embiid isn't able to go in game one? So it depends on um, kind of what Doc Rivers is feeling for that game. Um, so in game five of the Wizards series that the Sixers ended up uh, finishing off the Wizards in, um, they started Matisse Thibel at center, um, who is notably a guard. Uh, they, they just went small um, because Dwight, at his age, he's 34, 35 years old, um, can't play too many minutes. Um, he also fouls the bejesus out of everybody. So <laughs> they try to want... <laughs> It's true. His foul rate is absurd. Well, yeah, I mean... I don't know what it is, but even when he was with Atlanta, it's like he always seemed to get a tough whistle. Uh, I'll give him that. Like it, it always seemed like if somebody else moved a screen, the ref would kind of look the other way. If Dwight moved a screen, it's like, Dwight, what are you doing? That's a foul. Uh, yeah, he and he also led the, the NBA in technical fouls drawn during the regular <laughs> season. Uh, it's a two-way street. He gets called for a lot of fouls. He commits a lot of fouls. And 
complains a lot about the thousand years it's called for. Um, so given that, it's hard to have him in at the beginning of the game, at least in my opinion, because if he gets the Sixers in foul trouble early, um, it's harder to play defense when you don't have a capable center behind him and you're in foul trouble. At that point, you're just inviting either fouls being drawn or shots at the basket that don't meet much resistance because you don't have a true center in there. Um, so I expect the Sixers to stay small if Embiid is unable to go. Um, whether that's uh, Fiebel, um, Mike Scott may start. He was the, the first sub in when Embiid's injury came through um, in, the, uh, in the Wizard series. Um, so both of those are possibilities. I think Dwight starting would only happen if he, if for some reason Embiid's unable to come back by the middle of the series, which to be fair, I, I expect him to come back at some point. Um, but if he weren't for some reason, um, it would only be because the Sixers' other options just aren't getting it done against Clint Capella. So what did it look like when Tybal started at center? Did he guard Gafford or did they use somebody else? Did they use Ben Simmons or something? So, um, and I disagree with the alignment, but they used Tybal to defend Brad Beal um, with the idea being Simmons was in foul trouble during, um, during game four. Um, the, the game and beat left with the injury. And so the, the Sixers went large spots of that game without either Simmons or Embiid on the court, um, which largely contributed to the loss. So what they did was they, they planted Fiebel on Beal and said, hey, this guy is an all-defensive caliber player. We can have him defend the, one of the best guards in the league. And they used Simmons as more of a help defender, but not on Gafford. Uh, they put Tobias Harris as the primary defender on Gafford, and they stuck Simmons on Hachimura. Hachimura was the guy they designated as, like, we'll let him beat us. For the <laughs> um, yeah. So Simmons was able to roam a little bit and also take a little time off on defense because they anticipated him playing more minutes. Um, if they start Bible in a Hawk series, I would expect them to stick him immediately on Trey Young and say, have at it. Um, but I don't see them doing that to start if only because Capella on the offensive glass even offensively before the glass I think it's just more of a threat yeah it's interesting I would I would be worried not not at all because of the tie end, but you know if you can get any kind of screen and it's a two-man action with Trey and Clint and Tobias Harris is the one kind of trying to deal with that traffic that that's probably not ideal but again if then it becomes an issue of, uh, you know, do you stick Ben Simmons on John Collins and let him kind of do what he did with Hachimura and say, okay, if you're going to beat us shooting threes, get at it. But uh, I don't know. It's such a weird – the Sixers well, I, are always such a weird matchup series because they're just such a funky team in terms of positions. And they're so big across the board. Um, they typically force you to cross match, which I know gets a lot of teams uh, mixed up. And I think that the Hawks with their starting lineup that they used in the, um, in the Knicks series, which I would anticipate at least to start, is going to stay the same. For sure. Um, I think provides some ability to defend the Sixers, but at the same time, um, I don't think it's going to be a comfortable matchup for either team. Um, provided, again, provided Embiid misses time. Um, if Embiid plays... I don't think the Sixers sweat the matchups as much. If Embiid's out, that could make or break the series for them. 
So it, it just depends on really – it all comes down to Embiid's health. If he's around for all seven games, and I'm going to spoil something, but I really don't think it's close if Embiid is moderately healthy and available the whole series. And if he's not healthy and not available the whole series, then we have, I think, a toss-up. Um, and we can get more into it later, but that, that's the importance of both the matchups as well as the health of Embiid. Those are the two things to me that will really settle the series. So tell me about the back end of the rotation. I'm intrigued by some of these players, uh, especially Tyrese Maxey and Matisse Thybul. Uh, how, how much do you expect some of these guys to be used if Embiid is playing and healthy? Who, who's kind of the, the shining star from the eighth, ninth, and 10th man or seventh, eighth, and ninth, depending on how deep they're going in the rotation? Well, sometimes it's 12, so you, you never know what that is. <laughs> but but the, the star of the first round, I think, for the Sixers bench was Maxi. Um, so he had been in and out of the rotation throughout the year. Um, surprised people in training camp, then hit your normal rookie wall struggles, but really worked through them and changed how he plays the game to a degree on both ends of the court and has been kind of an X factor, someone who's able to generate offense for a bench unit that really sorely needs someone that creates offense. Um, early in the season, he was um, hitting a higher percentage of long twos and floaters than any reasonable person would expect. Um, and the Sixers really worked with him to try to change up his shot selection, turn some of the long twos into threes, and drive to the basket into the teeth of the defense to finish that way rather than rely solely on a floater game. Um, and that work paid off against the Wizards. When the Sixers bench struggled, which their bench had been pretty standard throughout the year, except for when there were um, some injuries in the middle of the year, which happens to every team, um, Maxi had um, been the odd man out after, like, after the rotation settled. But the bench, which had stayed, like, which had, like, been running, Shake Milton was leading the, the charge there. And Shake has really struggled over the past month or so, um, both with his shooting and with his handle. Um, and he hasn't really um, been able to get on track. So Just kind of out of the blue, or is this like be, an injury he, thing? Sorry. Uh, kind of out of the blue. Um, Shake never went down with an injury. He just had been off and on with his shooting all year. And he's um, not an elite athlete and doesn't have a tight handle. So when you combine those two things, he's someone who, um, when dealing with pressure defense, if his shot's not falling, is someone who really will struggle on offense, struggle himself and others. Um, whereas Maxi hasn't had those issues and he's really been an engine, like I would say for the second unit, um, especially the matchup with him and Dwight Howard together. Um, they run a very solid pick and roll and Maxi is so fast and demands so much attention that it leaves Dwight open for offensive rebounds, which at this point in his career is the, the biggest like skill that he brings to the table He's an elite offensive rebounder. I think he was top 15 in rebounds during the regular season overall, despite averaging something like 18 or 19 minutes a game. Um, so Maxi, I think, opens up those opportunities and creates offense in the second unit when the Sixers sit their starters, um, especially since the Sixers tend not to stagger their starters or their stars as much as other elite teams do. 
Yeah, I was telling my podcast co-host the other day that I think, you know, a big factor in the series, I think there's going to be a way for them one way or another, by hook or by crook, there are enough non-shooters that they'll figure out a way to do what they did with Clint Capella in the Knicks series, which is just let him be around the basket. And he was really unbelievably effective in that role. But it's going to be different even just in the fact that, uh, you know, there are guys on the Sixers that are much more of a threat to finish at the rim than the Knicks. Cause just Taj Gibson and Nerlens Noel, they just, they're not good finishers like that. Would, it's not only that they weren't good outside shooters. They're just not good inside, you know, right at the rim, they're bad shooters too. And that really freed Clint up to do whatever the heck he wanted. And, you know, if he's guarding somebody who's a non-shooter, but can be a finisher right at the rim, like Dwight, he's still going to, you know, he's going to have to be, you know, 15% more attentive to that than he was in the Knicks series. Cause he could just do whatever he wanted in that series and just sniff out uh, whatever was coming for anybody that needed help. Yeah. And I think the one, and I, I agree. I, I watched as much of that series as I could. Um, unfortunately, a lot of it, they, there was a lot of overlap between the Sixers first round series and the Hawks first round series. For sure. So um, some of the time I wasn't able to actually watch the Hawks games live. Um, but I would say the other difference, um, and I agree with that, is that one, I think um, Dwight Howard and Embiid, like if Embiid's there, are much better screeners, I think, in terms of what they can do mm. after the screen. Okay. And try, Todd, they're better Todd, rollers. They're not better. I don't think they're better screeners. Better, like no Gibson was a screen. marvelous screener in that series. Yeah, yeah. But it, better as rollers for sure. He knows every way to set a screen illegally and legally. Um, but he can't do anything back to the screen. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I would also argue that the Sixers have players that are more threatening shooting off the screen than the Knicks had as well. Um, especially when you consider Seth Curry, um, even to a degree, Danny Green. He's not going to do anything after catching it except for shooting. But there are people that could shoot 40% off the catch in those situations. And so if you leave the center back too much, those types of guys can make Capella pay for doing that. Um, I don't think it's going to be as easy of a, um, easy as a strategy this time around because the Sixers do have some elite shooting at those positions that can shoot off the catch. I personally was all in for Milwaukee in the Milwaukee Miami series. Uh, and I'm not just saying that to, uh, give myself a pat on the back, but just to make an analogy, because when I looked at Miami and what they had, it's like, they have Goran Dragic, they have Trevor Ariza, they have Andre Iguodala. And it's like, I think people have this idealized version of those players from three seasons ago. But when, if you watch them this season, it's like, yeah, that's not such a great thing. Um, I don't know as much about George Hill and Danny Green, uh, at least not from this season, uh, where are they? Are they sort of firing on all cylinders or is, is there some wear and tear there where they're not quite the same players they were a couple of years ago? So for Danny Green, I can speak to probably more than George Hill um, just because of the extended playoff runs he's had recently. So defensively, he's lost a step. He's not nearly as laterally quick as he was in his payday. And even then, he wasn't the best at lateral quickness. He relied more on positioning and smarts. Um, and so he struggles to chase guys around screens. That's why I don't like him in the trade matchup. 
um, as a primary defender, even though the Sixers went to that well during the one time in the regular season where the teams matched up and it sort of mattered. Um, <laughs> yeah. But in, in, in every other facet, he's still what he is, which is a high percentage three-point shooter and an elite team defender. He just is a little creaky at times and probably does a little too much whenever he puts the ball on the, on the, on the ground. But those are Danny Green things from Danny Green's entire career. Um, so while he's not the defender he used to be, while you can't stick him on someone as your lead defensive guy and say, Danny, have at him, um, he's still incredibly useful. Um, George Hill has – he exudes confidence still, um, which is to say um, he's not bad at anything. Um, he is a good shooter. I don't know if he's a 48% shooter like he was one season in Milwaukee, but he's probably an above-average shooter. He can still create off the dribble, but you don't want to ask him to do too much of it um, because at this stage he's not as athletic as he was before, not as explosive as he was before. And so he's solid, um, but he's, he's not – to me, he's a good complementary piece, but if you have to rely on him for big minutes, the Sixers are in trouble. Um, give him 20, 25 minutes a game. Again, competence in the fifth role, fine with me. Um, but he's not what he once was defensively. And on offense, you don't want to give him too much of a burden just because he's not going to be a person that can score efficiently at volume anymore. Uh, here's, here's a question that I actually asked Nate McMillan today. Uh, what, what's the difference between Joel Embiid in all prior seasons versus Joel Embiid when he's being coached by Doc Rivers? That's a great question. Um, I think the, so I think there's really two big differences. Um, one is that Embiid came in slightly better condition this year than he has historically, um, which is to say he committed to coming in and being as good as he could possibly be. Um, and the second, in addition to that, is um, he has improved as a shooter dramatically um, to the point where he is a threat to shoot efficiently from three, um, to be one of the best in the league at, in the mid-range. And because of those, because giving him those shots is a losing proposition, it makes his off-the-dribble game, it makes his post-up game even more dangerous. Um, so really what's the, the big difference from that standpoint, they're doing some different things on offense, um, but the main thing is he, he's mostly just a better shooter, which makes him a, a more of a threat all around. Um, he's able to use the threat of the shot to draw more cheap fouls. He's able to um, use the threat of the, of the shot to uh, take defenders that close on him too quickly off the dribble, especially on the block. Um, and he's converting 86% of his free throws in the season. So if you put him on the line, that's a bad idea too. Um, there's no real way of winning other than double teaming him. And to his, and I would say this is another thing Doc Rivers and his staff have done. Um, and the Sixers have a loaded staff. I'm not sure if you've um, looked into it. They have a lot of Doc's assistants from LA. They have Dave Yeager on the bench. Um, Sam Cassell is on the bench. Um, they've designed their offense and having shooting around Embiid, um, they've designed the offense to really maximize Embiid's space at all times. And so anytime you do send a second person to double him, you have 
a Seth Curry caliber shooter or you have a Danny Green caliber shooter, Furkan Korkmaz, you have that level of shooting around him. So Tobias Harris even, who I think shot 39, 40% from three, who I haven't mentioned somehow to this point. Um, those guys are going to make you pay for doubling Embiid. Um, so those changes, Embiid making the changes on his conditioning and improving his jumper, combined with the spacing around him, just makes him such a dangerous offensive player. And that is, that's the big difference. He's taken a step up on his own, and the team around him has also taken a step up. Are there any questions that I've uh, failed to ask you? Things, things that you wanted to talk about that I haven't led you to? So I do have a couple things. Um, for one, um, the, the big bugaboo about the Knicks series I remember from the National Talking Heads, because we all listen to them sometimes, um, was that the Knicks weren't doing enough to make the Hawks pay for having Trey Young on the court defensively. Um, that the Hawks ended up having the best defensive rating of, of any team in the first round of the playoffs, at least to date. Um, so where do you think the Hawks are going to stash Trey Young on defense if the Sixers have, even with or without Embiid, where do you think the safe zone is for him? I think the best spot is probably Danny Green. Part of what worked for them in that Nick series is that um, they had him on Reggie Bullock, who just really wasn't that effective off the dribble. So Trey could pay attention to his defense. And if the ball went Bullock's way, it was just close out hard, make sure he doesn't get a jump shot and we'll live with anything else that he does off the dribble. And I, I think that's, kind of analogous to how they feel about Danny Green. Uh, you, you don't really want Trey at the point of attack. You, you kind of want to stash him on the wing. Um, I, think Phil, I think where Philadelphia will be able to do a better job is what you really want to do with Trey is, you know, if you have the ball on the strong side, you kind of want to whatever you want to do whatever you can to get Trey as sort of the low man on the weak side, so that he's supposed to be the help defender. Um, the Knicks just didn't have enough mm -hmm. off of offensive weapons to really make that work at all. But when teams have been able to do that, that's sort of the best version. But you know, Trey's for all the knocks he got eighteen months ago on on his defense, which were you know decently deserved. Uh, he's been a lot more attentive this season. He, he closes out hard. He's, he's smart. He knows where the ball's supposed to go. He makes the right sorts of rotations. He's just not very big, but he's, he's a lot more committed in terms of effort. And, you know, in, in, in a lot of his first two seasons, they were learning seasons. They put him on the ball because it's here. Learn how to do this, you know, to defend at the point of attack, which is good. And it's a good learning experience, but when you're trying to win a playoff series, if that's not the optimum strategy, then you don't do that. So, you know, they're, they're trying to bury him on the wing with the least amount of consequence. And I, I think for this series, it'll be Danny Green. Yeah, and that makes sense to me. That's what I was thinking. Um, because Green is probably more willing to shoot under duress than Reggie Bullock was. But at the same time, I think that's what you live with rather than have him like, for one, Simmons is not an option. Simmons will bury him under the basket. Um, right. Oh, yeah. And Seth Curry is the other option, but you'd prefer him not having to chase Curry through actions. And the Sixers will put, especially if Embiid's out, the Sixers will put Curry in the pick and roll and try to force switches 
that way. And if Curry doesn't have length defending him, um, he's much more willing to take threes and take long twos, which the biggest challenge with Seth Curry is convincing him that he's open. Having a smaller defender on him means he feels he has carte blanche to shoot. Uh, the Wizards tried Hell Neto um, on him defensively. And while I like Neto probably more than most Sixers fans, despite his stint here last year, they're the same height. Neto doesn't have much length. That's Seth Curry's going to keep shooting. And he put, this, he put the Wizards away by scoring 30 on him in game five by just abusing that matchup. And I could see that him doing the same thing to Trey if that were the approach. Um, so I think that's the right call. I think that's what they'll stick with. And while Green is going to hit some one on the same thing so that is so that I think is the right call at the same time the Sixers have to hide Seth Curry too because right. Curry has a similar issue and I think that the hiding places for Curry are actually maybe a little bit more difficult of a matchup than what the Hawks are facing with Trey Young um, yeah, I, I think that's fair because Bogdan is really good off the dribble. But I, I think Bogdan's kind of the interesting defensive matchup to me. And I'm, I'm repeating things that I probably said. And like, for the people that are regular listeners, I basically said these things in the last podcast. But, you know, for the, for the course of the season, when the Hawks have had DeAndre Hunter, John Collins, and Clint Capella together as sort of the starting front court, defense has been really good. Those are just like three yeah. strong guys who can play above the rim. And, you know, I think for a series against the Sixers where you've got Simmons, Harris, and Embiid, it's like that's just about honestly as good as you can get. Like you look across teams in the league, it's it's hard to find a trio that that has that kind of versatility. But that puts Bogdanovich on Curry, which isn't really a very good matchup. Bogdanovich is a, is a good defender, but – you know, I, th- I think for some of the for the actions that the, the Sixers are going to use to get Curry open, that honestly somebody like Kevin Herter might be a better defender. They might try to get his minutes lined up with 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 Seth Curry a little more. And I think another thing that they could do is, um, you know, I think they could use Bogdanovich on Harris some, just because he, uh, Bogdanovich is a he's not a big guy, but he's really really strong. He does well, I think, on players who try to put their back to the basket. And mm-hmm. I, I think he could, you know, if, if Seth Curry is torching them, they might want to put Hunter on him uh, and, and shift things around and say, well, you know, what's the next best thing we could do? It might be Bogdanovich on Harris, uh, which would be a size disadvantage, but it's really hard to move Bogdanovich. Like there were some possessions where he had to guard Randall and it was fine. Like you know, he had help behind him, but it was fine. So I actually think that – so I, I agree that having DeAndre Hunter cover Seth Curry is probably, like, the option if Bogdanovich can't handle it. But I would put Bogdanovich on Ben Simmons um, because I think he, Simmons' biggest issue is when he deals with people that he can't just, like, kind of bowl over um, or people he can't drive by quickly. Um, I specifically remember during the regular season how – um, he wouldn't necessarily attack a John Collins because he just he couldn't really outmuscle him. Um, but if you got someone, um, but if you got someone who was either really slow, Danilo Gallinari. I'm just gonna say it. He's like he just he saw Gallinari and saw barbecue chicken. Oh so yeah. I, I don't think that's a match 
Oh, no, we won't see that at all, um, unless just just some fluke. <laughs> that's not happening. Not intentionally. <laughs> yeah. Um, but if you see um, Simmons on someone like uh, Bogdanovich, he doesn't. People that are strong in the post, even if they're smaller, he doesn't tend to attack them. Um, and if Ben Simmons floaters from eight or nine feet away from the basket or what happens in that matchup, if I'm Nate McMillan, I live with that. I say that's fine. Um, I would rather have that than Tobias Harris attacking someone who he could shoot over in the post. While Harris might not be able to move him, um, I'd, rather, I'd rather Simmons shooting those shots than Harris shooting those shots. Um, so I think the matchups in the series are very interesting. We've talked about them a lot just in the last few minutes. I think that's the most interesting part of the series, especially if Embiid's not around, because I think it's more than consequential. <laughs> if Embiid's not readily available for oh, the series. Sure, yeah. uh, I guess kind of going along with that, you would, you're going to know this better than me. The other reason I think I would like Bogdanovich on Harris is just because I, I like him as the idea. I like the idea of him as a sort of a one-on-one ISO defender rather than him getting mixed up in actions and having to work across screens. Uh, out, of, out of Simmons and Harris, who, who's going to be in sort of pick-and-roll actions more? So it, it really depends on who they're trying to get the mismatch on. Um, the Sixers, especially with Harris um, out there as like the hub of the offense, will run a lot of pick and rolls with Harris and whoever the ball handler is to try to switch Harris in the position where he gets a smaller guy in the post. And it might not even be in the post, maybe attacking from the top. But that is their general strategy, their hub of offense when, um, when Embiid's sitting. Um, they went mostly to Curry, Harris, pick and roll in game four, and then um, a mix of Curry, Harris, and Curry Simmons in game five without Embiid. Um, so I think that um, they'll, they'll play matchup basketball, and they'll work to try to get Tobias in as strong of a position as possible to attack a weaker defender. Um, they may even throw Danny Green screens in there to try to get Trey Young more involved. Um, they'll do whatever it takes to try to force um, easier matchups. Against the Wizards, it was Ish Smith and Howell Neto. Either one of them, Tobias Harris would screen, try to force a switch. That's the attack point. They'll do the same thing with Trey Young to the extent that they can or anyone else off the bench, Lou Williams. Um, if Brandon Goodwin is healthy slash these minutes, he would be another person they would attack. Um, so that, that, is, that is what the, the offense will look like without him be there. I, I haven't done my homework, but I vaguely saw something earlier today about Ben Simmons missing his first nine free throws of the playoffs. Was that, is this accurate? Is that possible? Yes. Yes. Was there a um, turnaround at some point? So a- after the free throw struggles, um, Scott Brooks went to a, a hacker shack strategy, but on Ben Simmons. Um, in game five, I think he went five of eight. So he turned around a little bit. Um, but since the All-Star break, I think he's well below his overall season's average um, and has noticeably lacked confidence at the line. Um, when, and you can tell, with Simmons, we've seen enough of him in Philadelphia to kind of know where his mindset is. Um, when he struggles from the line, he tends to be tentative in attacking the basket. When he is confident from the line, he'll attack the basket more often. Um, and so it's, 
it's certainly something that we're concerned with, not just for this series, but also if the Sixers are healthy in advance for a series against either Brooklyn or Milwaukee, that we need him to be at his best. We need him to get confidence from the line. And the Sixers just need him to play the type of basketball he's capable of. Um, and if he shoots free throws well, then he will be capable of that. And if he doesn't, he may hold himself back from being that person. Well, we joked about the Simmons on Gallinari matchup before, but uh, if Gallinari goes into the series knowing that Simmons is struggling from the line, he will give a foul. <laughs> he comes in knowing he's going to play 22 minutes and, and, you know, if he, if he, you know, he's like the master of the Euro foul, which is grotesque from a viewing standpoint, but from a strategic standpoint, it's pretty good. He, you know, when he's in transition defense and he can grab somebody, he will. So I yeah, suspect we'll see that in, in some of these. And if you have anyone off the bench that you plan on playing 15 minutes, like a Tony Snell or a Solomon Hill or whoever ends up being the rotation, um, you may very well designate that person as the designated fowler if you need to put Ben Simmons on the line just to stop the Sixers half-court offense from functioning. Um, I think to a point it works, uh, but the Sixers defense is good enough to where you don't want to go against them in a set that often. And so um, if Simmons is hitting half his free throws, I think you abandon the strategy, but if it stops him from attacking, you know, it might be worth it. Um, so it's, it's certainly something to monitor, especially if early in the series he struggles, whether or not that impacts how he plays after that. Yeah, that could come with some side benefits too. Uh, if, if they feel like that's a thing, they could get more minutes out of Trey Young just because that slows down the pace and injects so much more pause and dead time into the game that he, you know, he, maybe he can play 41 minutes instead of 37 or something just because he gets all that extra rest during the hack of Ben uh, portion of the game. But, yep. you know, interesting to see. Well, uh, I, I've got nothing else. I could ask you what kind of frozen fish you made that, that made you jealous of Dwight. I, I love frozen fish. Uh, it was flounder. Um, it was like the breaded frozen flounder. Threw it in yeah, that's fryer. good. That's the good stuff. I love going to the grocery store and just spending five minutes trying to pick out the best frozen fish. It was the one that was on sale. <laughs> Fair enough. Flounder's um, good. Yeah. Um, and so it was a, uh, it was like, I'm going to be healthy this Friday night, you know, like have the weekend ahead of me, Sixers game, probably not going to eat well. And then <laughs> immediately Dwight Howard, said, I want a cheesesteak from one of your favorite cheesesteak places. Certainly not something that um, made me feel better in the moment for sure. <laughs> Well, uh, I can't thank you enough. I, I should let you go so that you can go watch uh, Mavericks Clippers, which we're recording right before, it seems like. Yeah, um, and seeing if Luca can, uh, can put the Clippers away or if he uh, single-handedly cannot do that because that is how that series has been going. <laughs> it's funny because, like, the, the knock-on trade for so long, he hunts assists and it's like he really – doesn't I think there's a subtle distinction there between uh, hunts assists and is bad at moving off the ball. I don't think he really hunted assists. I think he's sort of bad at moving off the ball. But like 
And that there were times against the Knicks where it's like, okay, you know, there's a pressure coming from a certain direction. Trey has to do stuff off the ball. It's like, honestly, I think he's a little ahead of Luca in that department now, like in some weird way. Cause you watch, I've been watching this series. It looks like they just tipped, but I mean, they need Luca to do stuff on the ball, but I don't know if it would work if they ever needed him not to. I don't know. Interesting. But, yeah, so he is their entire offense. So him, his off-ball time is spent just kind of resting and standing there. <laughs> Which is also a good thing. As somebody who played basketball today for the first time in two years, it's like, <laughs> I, I, I understand the value of rest. Yeah. But thank you. Yeah, I appreciate your yeah, time, you. and uh, I'm excited for this series, and uh, hopefully we'll get some good viewing out of it. Yeah, I'm excited too. I'm hoping Embiid stays healthy, but if not, I think it'll be a barn burner. Yeah. Well, very good. Thank you, man. Have a good one. All right. Thanks. You too.